2: Hey guys, welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the best-selling beauty products and the damn good stories behind them. We're your hosts, Carlene Higgins and Jill Dunn.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Breaking Beauty Podcast. Hey Jill. Hey Carlene. What's up? Well, this is a very
2: special edition for us. It's a little bit of a throwback episode. It is, and that's because we're on vacation. And we hope that you're on vacation too, quite honestly, listening in a car on a road trip somewhere. So let's tell everybody what we're up to. So we are revisiting an oldie, but a goodie. It is the story of how MAC Cosmetics came to be with co-founder Frank Toskin. So what better time to revisit this? Not only
0: is it Pride Month, Mm -hmm. but MAC, the brand, has been around for 35 years this year. Mm -hmm. Viva Glam Lipstick, their philanthropic initiative, is celebrating 25 years this year.
2: Mm -hmm. And it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, right? Yeah. Everything's just converging at once. Yeah. So before before you get listening, we're going to talk all about Viva Glam and the history and all the great stuff it's done for the HIV AIDS community. But before we get to that, we want to deliver a quick update because last year when we launched this episode, it was around Canada Day, we mentioned an academic book. So if you like to nerd out on beauty history, the book that was being written was called Viva MAC AIDS Fashion and the Philanthropic Practices of MAC Cosmetics, written by Andrea Benoit and illustrated by Donald Robertson, famous illustrator. And it finally launched this month. Yay. And we have a
0: chat with Andrea in this episode. So mm-hmm. you will hear from her. But at the time, the book cover was so
2: under wraps. So yeah. it, it's amazing. The it one... was it was a work in progress. Yeah. And now it's for sale. Mm-hmm. You can buy the book at Barnes and Noble. You can also find it at Amazon. Mm-hmm. We originally produced this episode in two parts because the story is so epic. Yeah.
0: But a lot of you had given feedback that you wanted the episode on one long track so you can enjoy it all
2: at once so we deliver yeah go ahead download it take it on your road trip and happy canada day yeah and happy pride everyone happy listening too
0: hello everybody welcome back to breaking beauty this is jill here
2: this is Carleen.
0: So Canada Day is just upon us. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this show, Carlene, about some hot Canadian beauty brands. Yeah, we've talked about sticks, Desi M, Sage,
2: The Seven Virtues. Yeah, these have
0: all been guests. These Mm -hmm. people, these brands have all been guests on our show. But Mm -hmm. I think we can both agree there's only one Canadian
2: household name in the beauty biz. Yeah, that even like my grandmother, if she were still here would know the name of, and that is Matt Cosmetics. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like a career making moment for Jill and I, um, to be able to sit down with Frank Toskin, co-founder of the original Matt Cosmetics was just like dream come true.
0: Incredible. He, this is his first interview in four years. Mm -hmm. He is very much under the radar, does his own thing. He doesn't grant interviews a lot. Reason being he's not involved in Matt Cosmetics in the day-to-day any longer he sold the business to Estee Lauder he and his um, co founding partner, Frank Angelo, who has sadly since passed away, they sold Mac to Estee Lauder in what year was it? 98. 1998. Yeah. So, so um, Jill
2: had to do some serious sleuthing. <laughs> I,
0: I do, did what I do, which is just creep on the internet until I find something that I can use. Until she finds a way. Yes. I love um, that about you. But the thing was, we knew we could do this because yeah. he's right here in our
2: backyard. Yeah. Let's set the scene where we were. Yeah. So he actually lives in Toronto and we He sat down in his actual real life living room in a condo in Yorkville. We won't tell you more than that. We don't want you know super fans showing up at his door. But yeah, we were sitting on the sofa. His two dogs were there. Yeah, it was so intimate and lovely. He is so warm. Yeah, loved hanging out with him. We have photo evidence, and it looks like we've just woken up on Christmas morning. (laughs) It's hilarious. We look like a family.
0: We're all like, yeah, gathered around the mic with the couple with the dogs. Yeah. Only thing that's missing is like the Russian red lipstick and the yeah. uh, and like the strobe cream.
2: <laughs> they weren't too far away.
0: Let's start with a little bit of beauty school knowledge. Yeah. If people do not know, MAC was founded in 1984 Mm -hmm. and it stands for
2: Makeup Art Cosmetics. Its tagline is all ages, all races, all sexes. That was the original. It's now updated to be all races, all ages, all genders. So when you think about the fact that they launched with that in 1984, Mm -hmm. how progressive that truly was. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be a tagline for a makeup brand launching today. And I'm sure internally that is so many brands. Ethos, but they really are standing on the shoulders of a giant, yeah. which is MAC Cosmetics, yeah. who broke down barriers at retail level in people's minds.
0: Yeah. They paved the way. There would be mm-hmm. no two-faced, probably no Fenty Beauty. Mac just yeah. came in and was like, We're, we're just doing us. We're just gonna have um cross dressers at our counter. We're gonna have um, makeup in pots. Yeah, who's using those stupid sponges? We don't need those. Yeah. Like um, they just were like yeah. rebellious. And coming
2: out with like millions of colors that people thought nobody would ever buy because yeah. it was all about self-expression, not products you needed, Yes, but products that you wanted yeah. to be able to express who you truly were inside. And then you talk about cruelty-free, you talk about recycling back programs, to back to Mac. I mean, so incredibly progressive. And These, you've got to give credit where credit's due.
0: And like a tribe an army Mm -hmm. of people you knew the, you know, I remember one of Linda Wells editor letters, one of my favorite ones she ever wrote at Allure was talking about taking a trip to Toronto and seeing tribes of people dressed head to toe in black, Mm -hmm. going to like a Mac conference, you know, you wanted to be part of that Yeah, and it wasn't try hard. It was inclusive.
2: Yeah. Well, I remember myself in the early nineties, let's say like playing with makeup and, there was no way that I was going to go out, out and buy any other brand. No. At the time, it was the only one that a young, cool person would use. Yeah. And I was obsessed with twig yeah. lipstick. It of was course. like a brownie, mauve shade yeah. that, I mean, everybody wore it. And Spice Lip Liner, everybody wore it.
0: Yeah, and you're talking about, you know, super, super models of that day and that era mm-hmm. to everyone. This was like when we were in high school, right? This is yeah. like the heyday yeah. or junior high or whatever yeah but you know mac is is it's still leading the charge it's still like the number Mm -hmm. one prestige brand even though Mm -hmm. um it's been sold you know it's in estee lauder's hands now yeah the parent company a mac lipstick is sold every second around the world yeah and it's best known for my favorite iconic shades like ruby woo Mm -hmm. um remember even when rihanna came out with her Collection for MAC long before Fenty Beauty, she did Re Re Woo. At her own spin on it. Yeah. And it was so great. It's like that bluish red. Mm-hmm. It's the bestseller. There's four tubes sold every minute of Ruby Woo around the world. It's crazy. Yeah. Let's talk about
2: philanthropy. And so in 1994, Viva Glam was born. Yes. They launched their very first special edition lipstick. It was a deep red. And it was completely unprecedented because 100% of the sales, every Every penny went back to the MAC AIDS fund.
0: Yeah. And this isn't profits. This isn't proceeds. It's no. literally every dollar. Nobody took a commission. You're going to hear all about that later, but it's yeah. just so groundbreaking and celebrating 25 years. Yeah.
2: So amazing. How
0: much did they raise again?
2: $480 million have gone to this cause. Um, They have had, you know, top-notch celebrities that have come come on board. RuPaul was the very first. So great. Love RuPaul and the perfect face. And again, Frank is going to tell us how that came together in the beginning. Katie Lang was another one. Doesn't even wear makeup. No,
0: a queer woman who doesn't wear makeup. Like back in the day when all the models were like, uh, Nikki Taylor. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> who else was like fronting beauty campaigns back then? Cindy Crawford. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These fresh faced all American girls wearing the glowy makeup and he's just like no I mean
2: a brand with soul is what they were exactly so much soul yeah Um, and it it, it really does continue to today and I think that is just so fantastic to see Nicki Minaj has done Viva Glam Miley Cyrus MAC has sold in over a hundred countries now Um, and starting this fall they will actually enter Sephora.ca here in Canada can't say the same for the US but you guys have Alta (laughs) so that's going to be just one other place where we can where we can find Max. so that's a big that's a big stone that's huge that is absolutely huge
0: we're going to hear so much from frank but we just want to make a note that we got a bit of a scoop While we were there, because I was bugging him to make a Netflix documentary about Mac. And uh, he said that actually somebody has recently written a book. It's called Viva Mac, AIDS, Toronto Fashion and the Philanthropic Practices of Mac Cosmetics. It's written by Andrea Benoit and it comes out in 2019, published by the University of Toronto. And stay tuned. We actually get the
2: author herself on the phone to learn more about the project and the book. Again, MAC's Canadian roots, they do remain strong. Many of the best sellers are still manufactured right here in Markham, Ontario, mm-hmm. just outside of Toronto. Uh, the MAC lipstick, the MAC lip glass, yeah. another like fan favorite. Did I
0: ever tell you when I went to Markham no. and, I, and I was there, I was, it was honestly wasn't that long ago, Lucky I think girl. it was like 2012 I was there Okay. and I had the lab coat on and I was making my own lip glass and I remember this like defining moment where you put added the fragrance into your lip glass color and it's just it just brought you right back because like that because it's that vanilla smell that's something else that really made them stand out yeah that smell went into all their lipsticks and uh the lip gloss, which w- yeah. just created a whole other
2: category. Yeah. Just another example of how they broke ground, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. So so do you guys have your Russian red out right now? Put it on, <laughs> get your strobe cream, get, get your, your, your uh, furry slippers out, your blot powder, um, you know, and we haven't even touched on how a MAC created all the trends around the world basically for the last several decades oh, oh
2: and what about you guys have to listen to the end because frank is going to tell us all about his next indie startup yes. project which is i'm a big fan of this brand and the products already and it will be touching down um to south beach yeah starting in about a year so i'm not going to give away any more than that you're going to yeah. have to listen to part two yeah we begin with frank as a young child a dreamer in every sense of the word
3: I'm Frank Toskin, and I'm the co-founder of MAC Cosmetics. I was uh, born in a small town in um, what is now Slovenia, which used to be former uh, Italy, which used to be former Yugoslavia. So that's where I was kind of sequestered for the first six years of my life with my grandparents, because my parents were refugees at that time, and and my mom was in Italy, my father was sort of trying to get out of Yugoslavia, so I I grew up with my grandparents. My uh, grandmother was a dressmaker, so I sat beside her for endless hours, and that's, I think, where my interest in fashion and and design came from. Sitting beside her, I started, uh, you know, using the little pedal sewing machine, and uh, and uh, that's kind of like where I got, I think, a lot of my interest from my grandmother. Uh, very soon after that, my parents decided to come to Canada, um, so my grandparents took me with my little suitcase, because that's all you were allowed to leave uh, with in a communist country at that time, and they took me to the border, reunited me with my parents on the other side, and uh, we spent a year in a refugee camp in near Trieste, and uh, my parents finally got an okay an approval to come to Canada. So we landed in Halifax in '58. It was like this probably old ship that we came on, and everybody was vomiting because the seas were rough. And we landed in Halifax in, uh, I think it was around the end of March, and it was grey and dark and cold, and we had just come from this sunny bright, beautiful place in northern Italy, and it was kind of depressing. And we were put on a train, <laughs> shipped out west to Calgary. My parents were put to work on a sugar beets farm, and uh, their, their bubble was kind of burst at that time because they, they came here for the better life. <laughs> so here they found themselves farming from morning to sunset, and uh, it wasn't what they expected. Uh, it was a hard hardship for them. At that time, they had to pay for their way over, so they had to work it off their, their, their fare over here. And uh, luckily, we came to, they decided to come to Toronto and they decided to go back to Italy. Uh, but uh, we passed through Toronto, and they met some friends here, and we ended up staying here. So that's kind of like uh, how we got here.
0: What is a five-year-old pack on a journey to a whole new world?
3: Well, I took a little toy that I still have, and it was a little push toy that you push with your finger from the bottom. And it was two people dancing around and it was a little wooden toy and I still have that. Uh, a little suit that was made by my grandmother. Uh, I didn't keep that, unfortunately, and I didn't keep the suitcase. I think the only thing I kept was a little toy. I'm glad that my parents did come here. I do feel displaced sometimes, though, because, you know, I still have... My first language was, uh, first of all, it was uh, Slovenian, and then it was Italian. And that's where I went to school for the first year of my life. It was a little, a little odd for a young child to, to you know, to be thrown in, in, into grade one and uh, try and understand how this system works. I, I remember a particular incident where the teacher was calling me by my name and it was she was calling me Franco and uh, I would say, no, 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 mi chiamo Franco, not Franco. So I, I stopped responding to her and I'm sure she hated me because <laughs> I just would not answer to, to Franco. It taught my parents and myself you know, uh, how to fit in and how to adapt and uh, you it know, taught us a lot about hard work and uh, the struggles that uh, people have to go through. Um, you know, we weren't uh, privileged, my parents weren't privileged, they were, they were also displaced, and you know, we bonded together as a family, a unit, and that was invaluable for, for, for us, for the support that, that I later counted on my parents for, because they were there for me, and I was there for them. <laughs>
2: A person's first job is often seemingly random, but sometimes when you look back, you realize it was those small, invaluable lessons that can last a lifetime, as was the case with Frank.
3: Uh, my first job was uh, making Christmas trees. I worked for Normal Manufacturing. They made Christmas trees and Christmas uh, lights, <laughs> and uh, that was my first job. I had to lie about my age because uh, I, I had to be 16 to work in the factory. I, I was 14, and but uh, in, in those days, nobody really questioned you, we asked you for your passport or any kind of uh, you know um, certificate to to prove that you were 16. So I, I ended up getting that job and. Uh, I loved it It, for the time. It gave me the money that I needed and uh, it gave me the opportunity to buy my first car as soon as I turned 16. So there was freedom in working. My car was a Corvair Monza. I know. <laughs> what is that? It was a. It's it, it, it an old car, a little sports car that with a rusted uh, floor. With a rusted floor, I remember I could see the the street as I was driving. But I think it was probably about two hundred and fifty dollars. Anyway, it did the trick. It got me from uh, the suburbs to downtown Toronto. So uh, that, that's all I needed. And nothing ever meant as much to me in my life again. I was able to get a Mercedes and I was able to get, uh, you know, uh, m- better cars, but nothing gave me the excitement and the pleasure that that cheap, little, rusted-out Corvair Monza did.
0: Now we come to the next chapter, how the co-founders of Mac, Frank Toskin and the late Frank Angelo, also known as the Two Franks, met.
3: I met Frank when I was around 21 at a dance club called the Manatee here, and uh, I remember that uh, we only had a couple of dance clubs as gay, gay youth at that time in Toronto. And uh, so we'd all hang out as a community in these two or three clubs that we had. And I remember I'd always catch a glimpse of Frank staring at me from far away the other side of the room. And one day I managed to you know, get the nerve to go up to him and say, you know, what the hell are you looking at? You're, you're, you're starting to drive me crazy and bug me. And he said, I'm looking at you because I like you. And I said, oh, OK. <laughs> and uh, that was it. You know, it was uh, that was the start of our, our relationship you know got to know each other and and uh, we really liked each other uh and uh that was kind of like it the world is a better place for having had someone like frank angelo here um he was um Back as a child, I know that he was a very precocious child, he he started carving out his own career, I think by the age of 9 or 10. He uh, put a, ba- a band together at the age of 12, and by the age of 14 he was recording, and uh, by the age of 15 he was uh, already uh, travelling North America and performing. So. Um, he came to Toronto back in the 60s and uh, met Blair James who was a talented hairdresser at that time and uh, they started a place called the haircutting place and it was the first ever of its kind they did unisex haircutting just at the time when the hippies with long hair were, were cutting their hair and they didn't want to go to formal salons. I kind of like you know, hung around and watched what everybody was doing, and I realized there was a an opportunity there to step in and, and create a job and a role for myself. And I started doing photography. I knew he was buying like all these posters of haircuts because that's what the haircutting place was known for for all of these haircuts that they developed. And every month they'd come out with new haircuts. Um, I looked at these posters and I thought, I I think I can do better than that. I went to hair school and uh, I started learning how to cut hair and I started learning how to, you know, take photographs. And uh, so I started uh, producing some of these posters, which uh, I started selling in other hair salons as well. Tacky posters at that time, but uh, still interesting. It gave me a start and it gave me an insight into makeup and how light works with film. And so I I learned a lot out of that um, That. From that time. Beauty School Drama. My stint at school was very short because I went to Bruno's and one day uh, you know we would bring in people came in off the street it was and we did their hair for free so one day this very um, this lady came in and she she wasn't really a nice person anyway I I I was given her as as a client and this is how we practice and I put her in the shampoo chair and I forgot to put the the uh cape behind the chair so i shampooed her hair and and, uh, and without the cape being behind the chair so all the water ran down onto the seat and she was soaking wet when she got up and she screamed at me and she lost it in the store and i, I kind of and the, and the teacher started uh you know uh siding with her and i it was an honest mistake that didn't go well and i walked out so i never really got to finish hair school but i got to know enough about it so i I didn't get to create great hairstyles. Mm-hmm. I was more an updo guy. I used to love doing updos and roller sets and pin curl, nine o'clock pin curls, three o'clock pin curls and updos. Mm-hmm. That's what it was all about at that time.
2: If you walk by a MAC counter today, you'd never imagine that those bright and bold pots of eyeshadows, fluorescent lipsticks and glittery glitters were born in Frank Toscan's kitchen. But that's exactly how the story goes.
3: When I started doing makeup, there wasn't really a lot on the market, you know, there, there was very li- limited product. I mean, most things were sold, eyeshadows were sold in little palette, compacts of three colors, light, medium and dark. And, and you know, it was like a paint by numbers uh, approach that most cosmetic companies took. If you were, if you had red hair, you'd wear green eyeshadow with yellow tones and if you had Blonde hair, you could wear blues. and, and Anyway, I, I found it very restricting. And uh, I started going to curries, and I started going to stores, and starting to mix my own blend of colors, and I started to take brushes. Because there weren't brushes on the market at that time. Most people use sponge tip applicators, or they use their fingers. That's the way makeup was typically applied back then you know and I couldn't find brushes so I would go to like the art stores and find brushes that worked for me every type of product works better with a different type of a specific brush whether it's uh, if it's a wet product it'll work better with a synthetic if it's a dry product it'll work better with a natural hairbrush so um, you know I developed my own brushes and uh, then sent them off and had them duplicated and they were a hit. Nobody was doing it at the time, really. It was uh, like, I mean, I don't know, you're younger than me, but I know my mother only used her fingers and or this little little sponge tip applicator that came into compacts at the time. I think they've done away with most of those things now because people have, the industry has realized there's money to be made in brushes. And I think we also changed the face of makeup in, in terms of education. You know, when Mac, when, when we launched Mac, we, it was about teaching people how to use products correctly and with the right tools and that had never been done before um, it was more cosmetic companies tend to sell product and that was the end of it we, we brought people in taught people how to use makeup and the tools that were, were right for what they wanted to achieve and then they were your customers for life because you just you just helped them learn and be discriminating about the products that they bought
0: MAC 1.0 quickly outgrew the kitchen sink, and as the word was getting out in the makeup artist community, the demand started to grow, to the point where they opened their very first standalone pro store.
3: Our first pro store was on Parliament in Carlton. Not a great area, and people wonder why we opened there, but the building was cheap, and <laughs> Frank and I lived on the top floor. We had our office on the second floor. Uh, we had a beauty salon called MAC hair on the main floor, and downstairs I did my makeup in 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 kind of private and uh, at that time it was uh, i just really m- made and developed products for professionals um very you know raw products like things like pigments and things that makeup artists could use themselves and mix with mediums that they wanted to and uh, that just grew i mean the demand just just grew it was by appointment only when i when i was on my own there and then all of a sudden we started packaging the products and uh it just it just evolved
2: how do homemade cosmetics go to the next level we've said it before on breaking beauty podcast and we'll say it again it's always good to know a chemist
3: my sister was dating a chemist at the time, and uh, I thought that, uh, you know, I brought him in and said, Vic, you know, I've got a challenge here for you. Can we, can we, do you think we can work on some products together? Vic had never made makeup before, so, you know, we, we went to the library, got some books, and we learned how to mix some products. Uh, I knew what I wanted, and he gave me the opportunity to actually uh, see it to fruition. So then all of a sudden, I was able to create products that had never been made before. And, uh, you know, people really embraced uh, all this new creative opportunity that they had with makeup. I always loved makeup. For the fact that it was a playful and I always felt it wasn't necessary to wear makeup. It was something that people did and used as an accessory to have fun with. But never did I sell products because I, I ever told anyone that they needed a product to make them look better. Um, so we always took a very uh, different approach of in the way we sold our products. There was Frank and then there was Vic and then there was uh, you know my sister and then there was uh, uh, Rod Almer at the Bay, who embraced who we were and allowed us to come into the department store, and you know we didn't fit into to, to the uh, cosmetic department. So, uh, but he wanted to give us a chance. You know we were young and hungry and eager, and uh, he thought we had something to offer, and he recognized that. And uh, so he said, you know what, I'll give you a space on the second floor, back in the corner, and we'll see how, how you do there. And, uh, you know, I work there. Uh, We had uh, another two males working in in there. And and that was unheard of in in those days to have guys working at the uh, makeup department. We'd uh, we'd get our curious clients in. We would do their makeup. They'd go back to the office. And all of a sudden the next day, like there were 10 other women that came in saying, wow, you know, you did this for my friend yesterday. Can you do this for me? And that just grew. It just it just grew and grew from that uh, word of mouth there's a lot of pressure in the cosmetic department to perform like everyone else. And it's very competitive and you sell, uh, you know, generally because of commission and and pressure from from, from the the different brands to, to compete. So we didn't have that to worry about. We just worried about how to do what we did well. It's
0: 1985 and Mac decides it needs to go to the heart of the action. So it opens its first standalone store for consumers in New York City.
3: Christopher and Gay Street was the corner we opened on. Uh, most people thought we were crazy for going down in, in, in Greenwich Village. They said, you know, this is not where you start, right? But um, we, we knew that there was a vibe there, and, and and there was a there was a creative energy in that area. It's where all the Dry Queens lived. It's where kind of like the underground scene was percolating at the time, and there was so much change and excitement in that area. You know, the other areas of New York were really established, so that's that's kind of what fit our personality at the time, and uh, you know it was a very exciting time. We had, uh, you know, it's, it's celebrities started coming in. We had uh, we hired uh, drag queens like Lady Bunny and uh, Lady Miss Guy, RuPaul was in the store, uh, Lady Miss Keir would come in, I think uh, even Lady Gaga would be at the window peeking in, because she was too young at the time, I heard a story of that. She would come down to the store and just look at all the drag queens and, and wish she was old enough to come in and wear, wear the makeup and just participate. So we had, there was a real energy and a vibe. Within a year we had busloads of people coming down from, from up, uptown, uh, and, uh, because we became kind of like the, the, the show once, Saturdays and Sundays, and uh, it was an exciting time. None of what we did was really calculated. It all just evolved and developed from who we were as people, and uh, and all the thoughts and all the ideas came from all different aspects of life. And you know, for all races, all sexes. uh, First of all, I couldn't understand why. you know, there wasn't a lot of makeup for women of color. <laughs> I never understood that because I had lots of friends of color. So, um, and 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 you know, the, there was so much diversity, especially in New York. And so uh, we we developed colors, and that was part of our success as well. We we developed colors that really, um, you know, worked on all people. We had like 35 foundation colors, from blue-black skins to a very the palest of of, of porcelain skins. And all gamuts, from cools, green undertones, yellow undertones, red undertones. Uh, and we sort of covered er- every um, buddy's you know, skin tone in, in, in our range of foundations.
2: We've talked a lot about the trend toward 40 foundation shades on the podcast recently. Of course, when we say trend, we don't mean trendy. We just mean what's happening in the industry right now. But MAC was really leading in this category toward inclusive skin tone shades from the very beginning. Curiously, though, MAC's strategy wasn't as much about the quantity of shades available. It was more about giving people the tools to make their own match.
3: So we were early on. We were doing it by by um, we didn't have the ability to package that many skin tones, so we were doing it by selling pigment, and people were able to mix their own pigments, which really uh, it allowed them to participate in 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 making their own products as well to some degree, and that was kind of interesting. Uh, We would sell like yellow pigment or blue pigment or red pigment, so you could mix it into your foundation. And, and alter it because you don't need that many different products. I mean, you could take a, a skin cream and mix it into your foundation. You could stretch your foundation by mixing it into, you know, like a, a different uh, medium. So uh, we, we always tried to limit the number of products we had by utilizing, um, you know, d- different mediums. Cover effects is a line that I started uh, with my uh, brother-in-law after um, we sold MAC. And uh, it's in the market today and it has incredible foundation shades and also offers the same type of uh, philosophy like you can buy a shiny pigment and use it in your foundation. You can use it in your skin cream. you can use it dry, you can use it wet, you can use it uh, you know in so many in so many ways. <laughs> Their hiring
2: practices were certainly unconventional at the time, and that was all part of the magic.
3: Well, you know, I hired like people, and um, we never discriminated because artists are generally creative, and you can't put them in a white lab coat and tell them what to say and what to wear. And we gave them an incredible amount of freedom to be who they were. And that, uh, you know, uh, empowered us because they became very loyal people who who loved what they did because they were allowed to do what they love. And um, that created an electricity and and an energy at the counter. And, uh, you know, our staff was never boring. They were allowed to have piercings and they were allowed to cross-dress. There was freedom there. And uh, that freedom just created electricity at the counter and this show that just went on and on and, and that always, you know, attracted a lot of attention from all kinds of people.
2: But controversy struck when Max started handing out free condoms at counters at the height of the AIDS epidemic.
3: That was, that was the conflict, you know, like we were, we were growing and we needed to grow because our product was in the demand, but yet we were growing sometimes with people that didn't uh, necessarily believe uh, in everything that we, we stood for. Luckily, we had developed a strength in, in, in money, and money talks sometimes to retailers. We used that platform to say, hey, we're here, you don't like us, we're out. And, uh, you know, it didn't always go over well, handing out condoms, particularly in, uh, you know, the 80s. But, uh, hey, that's what was needed, and that's what we did. And that's what I think set us apart from everyone else. And that was a, a, an incredible uh, opportunity to, to use what we had created to do good.
0: People still face discrimination today, let's be real. But I think we can agree that we are in a better place today than we were 20 odd years ago. And a big part of that is thanks to people and brands who took a stand for equality in the workplace.
3: We actually really got off on doing that kind of stuff because we were always the underdog and and any opportunity to stand up uh, we 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 celebrated. Uh, there was an incident in one of the department stores in San Francisco, and one of our employees was let go because he was a crossdresser, and beautiful crossdresser. I mean, very few people kn- actually knew, and he was a great salesperson, a great artist, and he was uh, a real asset to our company. And uh, he was let go because uh, he some customers found him offensive, I guess. And uh, luckily, he was uh, the friend of Linda Ronsted at that time, uh, who was a singer. I don't know if you remember, but uh, she, she, she took a great offense to it and good for her. They, they picketed the store the next day and uh, they were forced to hire back that employee and they rewrote their policy on uh, what was acceptable and not acceptable in their store. So, you know, that was a, a, that was a, a situation that really changed attitudes in the department store. Remember earlier when Frank
2: mentioned that unbreakable bond that is your family? Here's an example of the lengths that his loved ones would go to to support his dream.
3: I had the fortune to, to have people in my life who cared for me and who wanted to see me succeed. And, uh, you know, people like Frank Angelo, people like my parents who mortgaged their house for me to, you know, uh, move on with my business at times where it was sometimes uh, uncertain. And uh, but again, you know, th- we, were, we were a team and we were there for each other and that became our strength. And uh, I tell you, having family is amazing because at the end of the day, if it's payday and you don't have the money they'll still be there on Monday (laughs) and and Saturday and Sunday Uh, so having that kind of uh, support was very important for for the for the success of that brand
0: every successful beauty brand can be traced back to a defining moment we've covered many of them right here on breaking beauty podcasts when the bestseller became a bestseller for Mac like many others it was a combination of star power meeting print power magazines remember those none of this was paid for by the way
3: i didn't believe in advertising and that was uh, something that we were very uh strict about from the beginning i didn't believe you know that telling people they needed your product was the way to go i believed in creating a need for the product it was a pivotal moment and that was probably the time that uh, i i opened a magazine and there we were i think it was a four-page spread in people magazine which was a big big magazine at the time, it was probably one of the largest circulations, and there was Madonna and Lady Di and Naomi Campbell and Linda Evangelista all talking about Mac. The next day, uh, I guess after reading that article, we had calls from every major department store and retailer. Uh, in North America and Europe, wanting to carry our product, they were all talking about Mac and how wonderful uh, you know it was to have discovered this product that worked for them, and uh, to discover this company that stood for so much more than just makeup. Uh, you know, we had uh, many initiatives at that time. We had back to Mac. We had uh, Cruelty for Your Beauty and, uh, you know, we had Viva Glam. We had many initiatives that people embraced. So people didn't come to us just to buy a lipstick. They came to us even if they wouldn't, weren't wearing lipstick, they'd come to support like the Viva Glam program. Many women would come in just to buy it for their friends, even if they weren't wearing makeup. Um, so there were so many reasons people liked associating themselves with us because they felt that they were helping. Uh, others as well
2: let's talk about one of the most iconic mac lipsticks of all time russian red
3: the first shade i ever created was called 100 percent red and then um, one day uh, i got a call from madonna's makeup artist debbie maser and she said I'm, I'm working on madonna's tour and she said we need to create some products and uh She said, I'd like a really strong lipstick, like this uh, lipstick that was 100% red, but I want it to be really, really matte. So I created this lipstick called Russian Red, and uh, I think she wore it on her album cover, and it became sort of like the signature color on her Blonde Ambition tour. And it was like this really, if you remember Madonna back in the 80s, it was was all about her red lips. And uh, she certainly put us on the map with that color.
0: So many trends come from marketing teams these days. It's almost hard to remember the days when trends and color inspiration actually came from the creativity and energy of an artist.
3: My inspiration was the runway and my friends. You know, I had friends that were in the industry. I had friends that were were models. I had friends that were designers. I had friends that were artists. And uh, I was fortunate enough that uh, you know I had an inside uh, kind of look at to what was going on, and, and fashion, you know, what we wear on our bodies kind of dictates what will what, what makeup trends will kind of be a, co- a complement that. And so I knew beforehand what was going to be coming out the year after. And, uh, you know, so I had kind of a head start. I wasn't in a boardroom deciding, you know, what are we, what campaign are we going to like put out there to, to sell this product that we've just created? We don't know if it's going to sell. We don't know if it's even going to take off. I knew that we were creating our own demand. Um, So I was very fortunate that I had that, uh, you know, that I was at the bottom
2: Up next, the incredible inspiration behind Mac's legendary Viva Glam lipstick.
3: The proudest accomplishments, I think. And I'm proud for the company to have, you know, continued that that initiative. Uh, Back in the uh, 80s, it was a very sad and dark time. And um, my very close friend was dying of AIDS. I was called into the hospital. Um, They told me to put on a a robe and a mask and gloves. And, uh, you know, I, I went in. And I was told to keep my distance. And I realized uh, you know, how horrible that must have been for him to be looking at these people, uh, looking at him like a leper. And uh, that ignited something in me, you know, an anger that I took with me. And uh, I, I, it came to visit me later on. But I knew that someday that, that moment would, would inspire me to, to do something with that. Because it was a very sad time, it was a very dark time for our community here in, in all, all over the world. It was a very dark time and uh, so you know his 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 passing didn't go in vain, so i I kind of attribute this success to to to, the, to John Lazoric and uh, very grateful that uh, i I had that, that that I did something with that opportunity um, yes. that I was offered. It was like a gift from John to say, "You know what I may not have." the ability to do anything now, but Frank, take it forward and do something with it. That was such a horrible uh, time in, in, in our lives because we were all, as a community, really saddened by where we were put. We were being put away and uh, you know, we lost a lot of people. I never wanted this to look like a marketing scheme, you know, so uh, we made sure uh, that every penny went back to, uh, you know, what it was raised, intended for. Um, We demanded that our retail partners didn't take a makeup. Our sales staff never took any commissions on this product. And uh, so we sold it right through 100% of every MAC Viva Glam lipstick that's sold goes directly to the MAC AIDS fund. And I'm very proud of that.
0: Hello. Hi, it's Jill. And this is Carleen. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you?
1: Good, thank you.
0: Maybe we can just start with your name and your profession.
1: Sure. So my name is Andrea Benoit, and I am an academic. I have worked for the last few years as an adjunct assistant professor uh, in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University. And right now I work at the University of Toronto in an academic administrative role. The book is coming out uh, hopefully next spring, but it will be 2019, and it's called Viva MAC, AIDS, Toronto Fashion, and the Philanthropic Practices of MAC Cosmetics. And so with a thesis, you
2: know, typically you have an idea and you prove it and then you come to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. What conclusion did you come to in terms of the significance of MAC, Viva Glam, and the whole campaign?
1: It... Sounds kind of uh, I don't want to say a cop out, but it sounds it sounds like to me it was something that could not be reproduced. It was a particular set of people and a particular convergence of events. You had uh, the revitalization of the Toronto fashion industry and the cultural industries in general in the eighties. Uh, you had that happening. You had the AIDS epidemic happening and the particular ways that activist networks um, uh, were responding to AIDS in Toronto in the 1980s. And then you had the emerging pattern of the commodification of social causes starting in the late 80s and working into the 90s uh, that everything kind of converged and it was the right people in the right place at the right time with the right energy. And i Determined that you know perhaps one of the reasons nobody has written much about this is that it can't be used as a as a model for how to do good branding or how to make a really great ad. You know, it was something that arose so organically and authentically with the right set of, set of circumstances at that moment um, that it stands alone. There's really nothing else that um, could compare to the way that the Franks developed their business and made their contribution to AIDS and AIDS fundraising and AIDS advocacy at that particular moment in time.
0: Who could possibly embody such an important initiative and keep that playful, positive Mac spirit alive?
3: Sachet, chante, sachet, chante, turn to the left, now turn to the right. You see these jewels? They are paid
0: for. Are you ready for this? A sachet, chante, all right. I thought
3: so. <laughs> <laughs> I have one thing to say. You bet overwork, bitch. Right? Would it be Elizabeth Taylor? Would it be, uh, who Who would it be? Would, it, would she be young? Would she be black? Uh, and uh, I could never, like, uh, put my finger on it. I never, I never, it was so abstract to me because I don't, I never thought one person could, could uh, represent all of what Mac was. And uh, one year, I was in Wigstock in New York, and uh, my friend Donald Robertson, who had moved to uh, New York, uh, I don't know if you're a very successful artist, his wife Kim worked for us, and so he took me to Wigstock and, and, and RuPaul was performing. And uh, you know we, we, I think we both looked at each other and thought, wow, like this, this is it, because we had talked about a face. And this is, this is it. He lived the community. He, he, he was uh, touched by all of the same things uh, that we were touched by. He fought for the same things that we were fighting for. And uh, he was all about makeup. I mean, God, he wore more makeup than anybody else that I had seen. He kind of had fun with it. It wasn't so serious. You know, it was what about makeup can do. Uh, not, not that it was corrective. It was, it was also like, here it is. Here's your paint. Paint up your face to which, however you, you, you know, whatever way pleases you, and have fun with it. I'd have loved to have gotten a Vogue cover with him. Uh, we tried to pitch for that, but I think it was too early on. Maybe today. <laughs> it wasn't about money. It was about uh, him, you know, jumping on this bandwagon that we were on and and making a difference. And becoming part of this, this, this team of mavericks that was going to change not only the cosmetic industry, but change how people saw the, the community, you know, um, what AIDS was doing to us. And uh, yeah, we were all, we were on the same page.
2: MAC wasn't just breaking down barriers when it came to race and gender. They were also leading the charge when it came to mindful consumption.
3: One of the things that I resented was overpackaging, and the cosmetic industry was very guilty of overpackaging, <laughs> especially in the 80s. And it's something that I always like uh, was very offended by, so we stripped it down to bare minimum. Uh, you know, we created the single pots, which up till then were rarely seen. People bought them in, 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 in trios. Recycling was very important, so we took back, uh, every, for every five containers, with uh, that initiative, we, we gave people a free lipstick. So they, uh, you know, they didn't change the garbage of the world, but they certainly got to thinking about it. And I think, you know, that's what it was all about: getting people thinking, getting them involved, um, getting them going, igniting some some thought around, uh, you know, the crises that are about to take over this world.
0: In 1994, the two Franks sold a 51% stake in Mac to Estee Lauder. In 1997, Frank Angelo passed away of a cardiac arrest following a surgery. One year after that, Frank Toskin sold the remainder of the company to Estee Lauder.
3: We were adamant about keeping creative control. Um, You know, Estee Lauder was a great company. Uh, We ran into a situation where we could not keep up with our demand. Uh, and we had a very large black market situation in Asia. Uh, I was sent over there to look at a Mac store, and I went there, and there was a Mac store with Mac employees and Mac product, but it was not Mac at all. <laughs> and uh, we went to, you know, we went to the government there, and we we, we went through some conflict, and we uh, asked uh, that we were told that if we didn't use, start using our brand within a year in that country, and we didn't start trading, that we would lose it. Uh, So we had to respond to that. Uh, We had a very short time, and we couldn't do it on our own. And we had to align ourselves with somebody that had distribution in all of those countries already. And uh, Estee Lauder was at the top. They were a credible company who were doing many great things. And we uh, tapped into their distribution. And within a few months, we were all over the world. Um, And that was part of the reason we, 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 we needed that that relationship and we needed that partnership. That company had grown up, it had taken on a life of its own and it was ready to walk on its own and uh, I felt that uh, you know I had given it as much as I could up till that point and uh, I felt there was a great cost to me personally. I had lost Frank at that time and uh, I felt that I needed to look inward and find out who I was and what things I had given up in, in, in that time that I had dedicated everything that I had to this brand. And family was very important to me. I adopted four children, and uh, you know, to, to get that sense of, of family again. And uh, as a gay couple, that was very controversial back then. But uh, we managed to, to, fight through it, and we got four beautiful children. And uh, so I I, I I had to I had to do that. So um, I think looking inward and and, and and re-energizing myself and empowering myself again to do uh, you know to take another step in a different direction. I needed that time off. It was bittersweet. There was a great feeling of loss because I had uh, because of how entrenched I was in that brand and how much the brand was about me and how much uh, I had given to it, you know there was a there, there was a feeling of, of of loss, and I had you know people were defining me by the brand, so you know to have that ripped away from you all of a sudden it, it was a it was a big it was a big loss, and there was uh, you know a moment where I felt very much like I had nothing underneath my feet. But, um, you know, I, I try, try to stay focused on, on, on the beautiful children that I now had and uh, the opportunities that they offered me.
2: Entrepreneurship is notoriously addictive, and Frank Toskin is no less passionate today than he was in 1984. Perhaps not coincidentally, like Lev Glasman of Fresh and Bobby Brown of Bobby Brown Cosmetics, his new endeavor focuses on beauty from the inside out. It's called Impact Kitchen, and it's fine, fresh, fast food that follows a paleo diet. So no gluten, minimal processing. I happen to go to the location in Toronto's East End near my workshare space, and I can attest to how delicious the salads and baked goods are. There are two other locations in Toronto, and a new location is opening in South Beach next year.
3: I also started a new business, uh, which is um, um, you know totally unrelated, but related in some way because as as I grew older, I realized how important health was, and and most of who we are is obviously who you know is is about what we eat. So um, that's always been food has always been a passion of mine, and I thought I would take a stab at creating this brand impact. I met uh, someone who became my trainer years ago, and we kind of collaborated on on some ideas, and we developed an incredible menu., uh, so we started this restaurant that's basically uh, sort of follows a paleo diet. We're uh, gluten free, sugar free, all of the things that tend to create havoc with our bodies. And uh, I, I, I found that uh, you know, eating well made me feel better. It gave me much more clarity. And, uh, you know, beauty, I did beauty from the outside, now i kind of do, do, trying to do it from the inside. I, I love everything. The Harvest Bowl is great, and it's organic, and it's clean, and, well, we've only started. We've only started. Yeah, it's 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 a whole new life, um, you know. Hey, I've got some, some, some time left, I better <laughs> make good use of it. I'd love to, you know, do more education around, uh, you know, healthy eating, because, uh, you know, obesity has, like, a, It's the next crisis and uh, teaching young children how to uh, eat properly, going into schools and delivering great lunches would be uh, something, is something that I want to work towards.
0: Frank and his current partner have four adopted children, twin boys aged 21, a daughter of the same age and a younger son who's 20. We asked Frank if any of his children aspire to the business of beauty themselves.
3: My boys have no interest in the beauty industry at all. They're they're, uh, not interested at all. My daughter started with, uh, she took a great interest. She loves makeup. Um, she worked for Mac for for a short time. She worked in the store and she worked in in the office. She wears her makeup beautifully, but uh, she's taken a little bit of a turn. And I think uh, having gotten into this other business impact and eating well, she's uh, looking at more um, how she can look after herself from from a wellness point of view.
2: Iconic beauty brands aren't built on the blood, sweat, and tears of one person alone. But don't take it from us. Wise words from the legend himself.
3: Build a team around you that you can count on, because it's very difficult to make it on your own. You're going to have to count on somebody at some point in time, and I think the people that you surround yourself with are going to be your power.